This is the Oanda Podcast. This is the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, talking to Oanda senior market analysts across the world. And today we're joined by Craig Earlham in London. Good afternoon, Craig. Good afternoon. Let's get the latest from the markets, which still reflect the overnight data from China. China and Hong Kong both underperforming. We've seen some weak data and Chinese rates are down. So what's been happening? So the Chinese data at the start of play was all negative. I think it was particularly terrible in terms of retail sales. And we've seen this kind of building now for a while. We've seen that since these lockdowns started and we've been on and off in different cities and different regions of China, that it does seem to have had a big impact on spending and on domestic demand. And I think this was just another example of that. So for perspective, retail sales uh, last month were expected to rise by 5% up from 3.1%. They rose by only 2.7%. But that also came against the backdrop of lower fixed asset investment, 57 7% falling shy of uh, the 6.3% expected. Industrial production was only 3.8%, falling shy of the expectation of 4.5%. So it was this culmination of really negative data, really driven by weaker domestic demand, concerns over the property sector as well, which has obviously been building since the last year, since the crackdown. And it really factored into this idea that not only are we seeing a slowdown in China, but that we could be actually seeing a pretty significant slowdown in China as well. And that's prompted uh, the PBOC to come out and cut rates. So they cut their seven-day reverse repo rate and also their medium-term lending facility, both by 10 basis points. It doesn't sound like much, and in fact, it actually really isn't. What we're seeing in China right now is lower demand for loans. We're not seeing lack of liquidity. We're not seeing interbank rates uh, rising. In fact, they're extremely low. So this 10 basis point rate cut isn't really going to stimulate demand for loans. It's probably going to slightly support the economy, but not in an overly significant way. And it's almost a sign of desperation. We've got the central bank, which is seeing inflation, which is close to 3%, but I was actually a little bit lower towards the back end of last week. We saw the credit numbers last week, which were quite disappointing. Again, pointing to the fact that credit demand just wasn't there to the extent that they want to see and they need to see if they're going to achieve these ambitious levels of growth, which they're obviously not going to achieve so far this year. And it just points to the fact that, of course, now we are going to see a cut in interest rates in a couple of weeks' time, the loan prime rate, the one and five year, because that they tend to move in conjunction with the MLF and also the seven-day reverse repo rate. So we are going to see that cut in a couple of weeks' time. But in reality, we're not really going to see a big economic bump on the back of this, as we may have seen in the past. China has some big issues to overcome, and one of the key issues is the fact that it operates this zero COVID strategy, which has weighed on growth throughout this year uh, and is likely to continue to weigh on growth over the course of the rest of the year, and really as long as it's ultimately in force. And that uncertainty is having a negative effect both on the domestic markets, the domestic economy, and and ultimately households and businesses as well. Uh, So that's a major concern, but it's not just a concern for China. China is the world's second largest economy, but it's also a massive growth driver uh, throughout Asia as well. So I think that is a, a more broad negative. But as we can see from the Asian markets overnight, the two worst performers were the Shanghai Composite and the Hang Seng, and that tells you everything you need to know. We've also seen the latest Japanese GDP figures, Craig, which were worse than expected. 
Yeah, they were. They were slightly worse than expected, but to be honest, that was mostly inventories. So building inventories actually contributed positively to GDP in the first quarter and then took away slightly in the second quarter because we saw the reversal of that. This is something that can be quite volatile. We saw that from the first and second quarter US GDP as well. Um, so I think most people will tend to look past uh, this kind of inventory shifts and what that can have uh, on the, what impact that can have on the GDP figures. Uh, but Broadly speaking, it was positive. We saw a nice rebound from uh, COVID-related uh, restrictions earlier this year. So that was seen as a big positive. I think expectations of growth are quite decent as well going into the second half of the year as well. Ultimately, this just comes down to whether the Japanese economy can continue to weather two particular storms. One is the fact that we're seeing growth slowdowns all around the world and whether that's going to have a significantly negative impact on its economy and also the movements in the currency because of energy prices being so high and Japan being such a high energy importer. Uh, the weak yen obviously has a big impact in terms of the cost of that energy. So I think those two particular things are major headwinds as far as Japan is concerned. But the GDP data today despite missing expectations was more encouraging than not craig let's talk about oil now before we talk about the latest oil numbers which are down quite significantly today saudi oil giant aramco has broken its own record with a 48 billion dollar profit for the second quarter of 2022 and that is a 90 percent year-on-year increase it's the biggest earnings for the world's largest energy exporter since its public listing three years ago Obviously, the Russia invasion of Ukraine has seen oil and gas prices skyrocket, but uh, those numbers are eye-watering. They really are. I mean, it really puts into perspective the numbers that we've seen from these other oil giants that we that we all know, BP, Shell, etc. These are substantially bigger. But then, as you say, it's one of the world's largest companies in general. It's the world's largest energy exporter, uh, and therefore we are going to see it kind of dwarf the other numbers. But it does really put into perspective just how big a profit that that is for one quarter. That's an incredible number. But what was really interesting, I think, to come from that was the fact that it maintained its dividend at $18.8 billion, even though it had this record-beating quarter, and referenced the fact that it wants to continue to invest in production expansion because the world is uh, going to see more demand over the course of this next decade. And as we've seen over the last year or so, it's actually under-invested which has meant the supply has struggled to keep up ultimately with demand. So I think that was a really important thing because when we look at some of the other numbers that we've seen, some of the other results, it's all talked about returning capital to shareholders and that's very much not what we're seeing on this front, even though we've seen, as I say, this massive, massive profit in the uh, second quarter. To many people, obviously, this is still going to be unsavoury. At the end of the day, when you're seeing these types of profits uh, at a time uh, when households and businesses are seeing eye-watering bills uh, and, and the cost of living is going to be something that's going to mean that people are going to really struggle over the course of the next six months and then you're seeing a big energy company making these profits, people are ultimately not going to like it. And if anything, it could even ramp up the pressure even further on governments around the world to do more to tax energy companies. And of course, that won't include Saudi Aramco itself, but to tax these big energy companies in order to further support and we've obviously heard that today from Sakia Starmer and I think we're going to see it in the US and, uh, and across Europe as well because when you're seeing these massive profits it's naturally going to draw a lot of political attention. And what's happening with the Iran nuclear talks at the moment? It's gone a bit quiet over the last few days. So the talks have happened uh, and it seems that we may be getting an answer from Iran 
tonight by midnight uh, in terms of where they stand on the draft text that the EU has put forward. The EU desperately wants to wrap this up now. They're saying effectively this is the final text. You can either agree to it or not. That's probably not going to be the end game. I imagine Iran's going to have a couple more things to say on this and I think the US may do as well. But it does seem that these talks aren't reaching a conclusion one way or another. I'm not sure if the markets are getting too excited by that but as you say the Oil prices off by 5% today. A part of that is going to be that Chinese data overnight, although it was only off 1% or 2% shortly after the European Open. And that has been that has continued to move lower, even though other areas of the market haven't moved quite as considerably. So maybe this talk of, of Iran having an answer by midnight tonight has helped contribute to that decline that we're seeing in oil prices. Because ultimately, Iran, once upon a time, was one of the world's biggest oil producers, one of the world's biggest exporters and one of the things that they've said about this deal all along is not only do they have massive reserves of oil and gas but also that they can ramp up production quite quickly uh, in order to meet global demand by quite a considerable amount so therefore this is seen as a big negative for oil prices if this deal gets over the line finally craig what about the week to come what are you looking out for over the next uh, seven days or so well, I think the thing that stands out is obviously the Fed minutes on Wednesday. I'm not necessarily sure they're going to offer too much. The simple reason being that the markets have uh, really become absolutely obsessed with this dovish pivot that the Fed apparently adopted at the last meeting. Even though policymakers have come out in force since to clarify this and say that it's not a dovish pivot, it's just a data-dependent shift, and that that could still mean aggressive tightening going forward. The fact that we saw the inflation data last week surprise in a positive way, uh, I think has further exacerbated that. And what this leaves us in a position now of saying we've got the Fed minutes on Wednesday. If we see uh, something from the minutes which is perceived as hawkish, the markets may just shrug it off. But if we see anything that feeds this dovish message, then the markets will leap on it in a way that they have over the course of the last couple of weeks. So I think that's going to be the key event this week. But we've also got things like UK data as well. We've got retail sales, we've got inflation, we've got unemployment, etc. from the UK. So I think that's going to be one focal point. We've got the RBNZ rate decision uh, on Wednesday in the early hours of Wednesday morning. Uh, if you're here in the UK late on uh, Tuesday night, of course, if you're over in the US. Uh, and we've got things like Australian uh, jobs data uh, as well um, and, and a few other scatterings of data as well of course throughout the rest of the week and of course obviously US retail sales uh, as well ahead of those Fed meeting minutes. So there's still a lot to really uh, focus on uh, as the week progresses and, and it's just going to be an interesting one because we don't really get quiet weeks in the markets anymore. The summer is typically a quieter period but when there's so much going on and there's so many different factors at play, uh, it, it's hard to imagine a week when we won't see much volatility in these markets. OK, Craig, thanks very much for joining us today. We'll speak to you again soon. Thank you. This is the Oanda Podcast.